I was in eighth grade when 9-11 happened, and I still remember just a very distinct memory of watching the TV as the second tower fell after the second plane hit it. And I was young. I, I, I didn't know what to think. Part of me felt numb. It was deeply confusing. And I just remember asking one question in my head, why? Why do people do things like this? Why are thousands of people dying? Why is there so much evil in the world? Those feelings were stirred up for me recently uh, because a few weeks ago there was a viral TikTok trend. And the trend was people reading Osama bin Laden's letter to America where he explained why he did what he did and said it was totally just and totally good. And people on TikTok were reading his letter and they're crying, not because it was so sad that he'd destroyed thousands of lives, moms and dads. No, they were crying because they thought he was right. Again and again, seeing his letter to America now and knowing that he was right. And as I saw this, I I, I was dumbfounded. I, I was again asking, why is there so much evil in the world? And why are we so incapable of identifying evil for what it is? Why? We all ask why, because there are far more tragedies in this world than we'd like to admit. We ask why, and our why always comes with a how. So when there's a school shooting, we ask the question, why is there so much evil? And you get answers like this in headlines. The Texas shooter was bullied. That has Philly's gun violence experts talking about unaddressed pain. So why is there evil in the world? Well, it's because of bullying and mental health issues. Or when a Nigerian militia recently executed hundreds of innocent civilians. Again, people ask, why? Why does evil like this happen? And you get a headline like this. Rising inflation fuels violence as thousands die in October. So there you have it. Why is there evil? Well, because of economics, because of human systems. And how do we fix it? Well, you just fix the system and that will solve the problem of evil. How do we prevent evil? Well, you get headlines like this answering that question. Violence prevention starts with self-care. So why is there evil in the world? Well, it's because we don't take care of ourselves. And if we just took care of ourselves, well, then there'd be less evil in the world. As I read these highlights, as these headlines, as I think about the answers to those questions, I can't help but feel that they're all a bit simplistic. They really don't explain much. I'm not saying that they're not true. There's truth in every single one of those headlines, but they aren't the total truth. Uh, Someone else gave a different answer. A a deceased USC philosopher named Dallas Willard wrote this. He said, the reason why there is so much evil in the world is because every human has a inbaked, inside of their heart, readiness to do evil. That's why there's so much evil. So this is what he wrote. He said, this, ever-pre- this ever-present readiness to do evil fills common humanity, absolutely everyone, you and me, and lies about us like a highly flammable material ready to explode at the slightest provocation. There is a real presence of evil scarcely beneath the surface of every human action and transaction. In other words, Dallas Willard is saying there is so much evil in the world. Why? Because there's a problem with the human heart. The human heart is sick. This side of Eden, we all have a default mode. And that default mode is a readiness to do evil. And if the situation is right, we all go into our default. 
You see, when you see these tragedies, they happen around the world, you always think, I wouldn't be like that. I wouldn't do that. When you hear about things like Nazis and concentration camps, you say, oh, I wouldn't be one of those people. When you think about segregation and the evils of racism, oh, I wouldn't be one of those people. But the truth is, we have sick hearts. And if the circumstances are right, we might be exactly like those people because we all have a readiness to do evil. If you thought the Dallas Willard quote was hopeless, let's read Paul. He's a lot less. Uh, this is how he describes you and me. This is his description of humanity. He says, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All, every single person, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. So there's your sober wake-up call for the morning. Paul does not have a positive view of humanity this side of the fall. He agrees with Dallas Willard. I say Dallas Willard agrees with him that the problem of human evil exists because there is human evil inside of every heart. The problem of human evil exists because we all have a inward readiness to do evil. And if the circumstances are right, we all have a deep temptation to give in. In fact, we often do. So the question becomes how? How do you deal with the problem of evil in the world? Well, if the problem is inside of every human heart, there's only one solution. You have to deal with the human heart. And there's only one person who has the power to refurbish the human heart, to change lives. And that one person is Jesus. I think that's what led Dallas Willard, that, that philosopher, to make this rather provocative statement. He said, there is no problem, not one, there is no problem in human life that apprenticeship to Jesus, discipleship, cannot solve. If I can be honest, you know, the first time I read this quote, I thought it was noble but trite, like, like just a little bit naive. The world's a lot more complex than this. But the more I sat with it, the more I realized how true it really was. The problem with the world is the human heart. And you can change systems, you can change structures, you can deal with mental health, you can have a great self-care program, you can do all of those things, and they don't change the heart. You can send militaries from every nation in Europe against the Nazis, and you can defeat them, but if you can't change the heart, you can't stop Nazis from happening again. You see, the problem is in the human heart. And the only solution to all the evil we see, to the evil we see in our own life and the evil we see around us is dealing with the heart. And so if I didn't like Dallas Willard's quote, I was a little bit shocked to realize Paul said something very similar. In a letter to his protege, Timothy, he wrote this. He said, train yourself to be godly. He's talking about apprenticeship to Jesus. When he says training, he's not talking about physical training. He's talking about spiritual disciplines. He's saying, have a regular set of disciplines in your life. Prayer, Bible reading, solitude, silence, fasting, confession, the normal disciplines that Christians have practiced throughout generations. He says, use those to train that inward readiness to do evil. You can train it out by the Spirit and train into your heart by the Spirit's grace through those disciplines a readiness to do good. So he tells Timothy, train yourself to be godly for physical training is of some value, 
but godliness has value for all things. There you have it. Where does godliness have value? What, can, what problems can godliness solve? It can solve all things, holding promise both for the present life. If you want to deal with the problem of evil in this world, train to be godly because it has great results in the present life and for the life to come. See, Dallas Willard, the Apostle Paul, they both agreed. The problem with the world, why there's so much evil, is the human heart. That's why. And the only answer, the only way to change that is for us to give our faith and our allegiance to Jesus, to allow his spirit to regenerate us, to transform us, and then to walk in godly disciplines to train ourselves in a readiness to do good that can actually overrun, overwhelm the readiness to do evil that every human has. You know, there have been a few moments in history that make people ask, why? Why is there so much evil? more than World War II, the Nazis, and the Holocaust. And that's why this morning I want to focus some time on a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, Keith talked about him several weeks ago, shared a story about him. I'm going to share that story again, but I want to give it more context because Bonhoeffer was one of the rare few Christians in Germany who actually resisted the Nazis. He had a readiness to do good instead of a readiness to do evil because, again, we all like to think, I would never be a Nazi. I would never support Hitler. But here is the fact. The vast majority of Christians in Germany did. The vast majority supported Nazism, supported their nationalism, supported Adolf Hitler. They all had that readiness to do evil and they were not prepared for the moment when evil came and it took over. But there were some who found a readiness to do good and one of those people was Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the way that he did it was through spiritual disciplines, by training himself through prayer, scripture reading, silence, solitude, confession, all of those things. That was how he trained himself a willingness to sacrifice, to give of his life. Uh, there was another man, a friend of his named Wilhelm Niesel. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's Wilhelm Niesel. Uh, Wilhelm Niesel was also anti-Nazi, and he and Dietrich Bonhoeffer got into a bit of a debate via correspondence because Wilhelm Niesel thought that what Dietrich Bonhoeffer do was doing was noble. Bonhoeffer had started an illegal underground seminary in a little town called Finkewald. And at the seminary, they were practicing rigorous disciplines. And Niesel said that's all fine and well, but to him it stunk of empty spiritualism. In his mind, training people in spiritual disciplines... Again, fine thing to do, but it wasn't going to do anything to resist the Nazis. So they're writing back and forth. This is before World War II, but after the Nazis took over the country. And finally, Bonhoeffer says, why don't you come out and visit me and you'll see for yourself. Now, three years before that visit, uh, the Nazi party had taken over the German legislature. And as a result, they were able to take away the president's powers and install Hitler as the supreme leader of the German nation. One of the first things he did as the leader of the German nation was establishing a national German church. It was called the German Evangelical Church. And it had authority over every church inside of the country. And Hitler maneuvered to get his own personal religious advisor, a man named Ludwig Miller, Muller, uh, and, and he got him in the position of bishop. In other words, he was in charge of the German evangelical church. 
And Ludwig Moller, the first thing that he did was instate something called the Arian paragraph into every church's constitution. Uh, the Arian paragraph said that anyone of Jewish descent was banned from being a pastor or serving inside of a church. Not many months later, other pro-Nazi, pro-Hitler individuals who wanted to use the church to spread pro-Nazi, pro-nationalist, pro-Hitler propaganda throughout the church, they came along and they went a step further and they banned the Old Testament because it told the story of Jewish people. They, they made it so that you could only do Aryan depictions of Jesus inside of the church. And they saw to it that any pastors who did not support Hitler were kicked out of the church. They were removed from any sort of authority. Fast forward three years and Wilhelm Niesel is getting ready to go visit Dietrich Bonhoeffer at his illegal seminary. Now, they met because they were part of a group called the Confessing Church. The Confessing Church, this is a picture of them, there's Dietrich Bonhoeffer right there. The Confessing Church was a group of men that got together and they wrote a letter called the Barman Declaration to Hitler. And they said that the state has no right to interfere with the church's theology or with the church's organization. Over the next three years before Wilhelm came to visit Dietrich Bonhoeffer, hundreds of confessing church pastors were thrown into concentration camps. Many of their leaders were murdered. All of their funds were confiscated. And any confessing church that still existed was banned from collecting offerings. And so when Wilhelm Niesel comes to visit Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he is very well that, aware that he's doing so at a great risk to his own life and his own welfare. When he arrives at the underground seminary, he sees exactly what he expected and hoped he wouldn't see. A bunch of young men living together, having a common life with one another who look like monks. I mean, they don't actually look like monks, but they're living a monkish life. And this is what Bonhoeffer called it. He called it a new monasticism because their days were regimented by what? By training for godliness. It didn't look like a seminary. There weren't classes going on. Instead, what were they doing? Every day was characterized by public and private readings of scripture, public and private moments of uh, prayer. They sang hymns together, they sang psalms together, they had shared meals together, they practiced confession with one another. And Bonhoeffer said, this is the only way that we can resist the Nazis. Now he was very aware that this would end up raising some eyebrows. People would think that he'd gone too far, that this was uh, just, just a bit too much. But in his view, it was exactly what people needed. You see, he thought that most Germans had capitulated to Nazism for one simple reason. They had given in to what he called cheap grace. Cheap grace was the reason why so many different Germans had fallen in with the Nazis. This is what he wrote. This is what he meant by cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession, absolution, which means the forgiveness of sins, without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. You see, cheap grace is the idea that God only wants us to believe the right things, but he is not interested in transformed lives. God wants you to have the right ideas, but he doesn't care how you live. And so, of course, you can support Nazis. This is how you end up with churches that have altars that have swastikas on them. You would have seen this all over Germany. No one would have raised an eyebrow. It's offensive to us. It's disturbing to us to see. But this is a church altar right there in the front of the stage. Why did this happen? 
cheap grace. Hey, as long as I believe the right things, it doesn't matter how I live. It doesn't matter whether or not I support Nazis and whatever they're doing to Jewish people and whatever they're causing in the world. It was cheap grace. But to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, there was no such thing as cheap grace. Grace is always costly. Grace is always costly. I mean, just think for a second. What did it cost the father to send his son? The son, what did it cost him? It cost him his life. He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become his righteousness. He died to forgive us. There is nothing that is cheap about grace. Grace is costly. And when you put your faith in Jesus and you give him your allegiance, he not only changes your heart and and renews you, but he calls you to something as well. He calls you to costly obedience. There was no costly obedience in German churches. If saying no to Hitler meant I'd lose my job, if saying no to Hitler meant I'd lose my property, if saying no to Hitler meant I might lose my life, that's a cost I'm not going to take. There was no costly obedience in Germany except for a rare few. And the rare few who were able to give that costly obedience were able to do so because they had trained themselves through rigorous spiritual disciplines designed to help them grow in godliness. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about costly obedience. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, he's saying the suffering that we all endure as followers of Jesus. He says, the first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship. He's talking about those rigorous practices of apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, prayer and scripture, silence, solitude, fasting, all the things that we do to create a inward readiness to do, to, to do good, all the things that God uses to transform and refurbish our hearts. He says, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ. See what he did looked radical to the outside world. He said, I'm just surrendering myself to my king. That's all it is. It's a personal surrender. We surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not a terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. Catch this last line and ask yourself if you believe it. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The average German Christian thought when Christ called a man, he bid him do whatever he wanted to do. He bid him keep his life. He bid him keep his stuff. He bid him keep his relationships. But Bonhoeffer said, no, we must discipline ourselves because when Christ calls a man, he bids us come and die. We will lay everything down at the foot of the cross, but you will not be prepared to do it when the great moment of evil and temptation comes if you have not engaged in the disciplines that God has given us by grace for our good to train in us a readiness to do good. And that's why Bonhoeffer started the seminary. That's why he gathered all of those students so that they could learn an inward readiness to do good, reflexive holiness, reflexive righteousness. After Wilhelm Niesel arrived, he uh, stayed the night and the next morning Bonhoeffer woke up and he said, hey, let's go on a little rowing trip. And so they get into a boat and they row across 
the Oder Sound. And when they hit the far shore, they get out of the boat and Bonhoeffer leads him up a hill. And as they crest the hill, Niesel looks out and below him is a Nazi air yard and training camp. And there are planes that are coming in and out and there are soldiers that are marching in regimentation. They are goose-stepping right alongside one another. He sees tremendous rigor, tremendous discipline, tremendous commitment to a cause. And Bonhoeffer says, do you see all of that rigor? Do you see all the discipline? Do you see all the commitment? Do you know what they are training for? He looks at Niesel and he says, they're training for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. We can't resist the Nazis if we are not more disciplined, rigorous, and committed than they are. Several years later, he wrote an unpublished novel, and there's a character in it that has this fantastic line. He says, you have to be stronger than these tormentors you find everywhere today. Are we stronger than the tormentors? Are we ready when the moment of evil and temptation comes? Have we trained in ourselves a readiness to do good? Or do we still have that readiness to do evil? When Niesel saw all the troops, he changed his mind on the spot. He realized that Bonhoeffer was right. The reason why so many Germans had capitulated to Nazism was because they had not trained a readiness to do good. They thought having the right ideas was all God asked of us, but no, God transforms us to call us unto costly obedience. So Niesel supported the seminary and the cost of that obedience was high because he was arrested by the secret police a year later and left in concentration camps for years to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for his part, was able to escape to America, but upon arriving just two weeks later, all of that training that he'd done to create that readiness to do good, it, it, it caused him to sacrifice, to realize that if he wanted to follow Jesus, he couldn't flee from the conflict. He couldn't flee from Germany. He needed to go back and face whatever came. And so he got back on a boat two weeks later and went straight back to Germany. When he arrived in Germany, he continued to try to work with confessing church pastors as they were being executed, as they were being sent off to concentration camps, and eventually he himself ended up in Flossenburg concentration camp. And it was there, just two weeks before American liberators arrived, that he was executed by hanging. Just before dying, he wrote this amazing little passage and if you know anything about his time in the concentration camp, you'll know that he never stopped with the disciplines. In fact, he started training his other fellow inmates to walk in prayer, to walk in Bible reading, to walk in silence and solitude and fasting, to train in themselves the willingness to do good. And that's why he was actually able to love his captors, to pray for those who were tormenting him. He showed a radical form of love that shocked everybody around him until the moment that he died. He lived as a stranger. He lived as an exile. He lived as someone who was different than everybody else because God had trained in him this inward readiness to do good. This is what he wrote just before the end of his life. He said, Christians are patient and cheerful in suffering. Have we trained ourselves that we can actually be patient and cheerful in suffering? Or does suffering take us to a dark place? He goes on, he says, and they glory in tribulation. Do we glory in tribulation? Do we glory in hardship? Have we trained ourselves so that tribulation is a gift. They live their own life under alien rulers. He's talking about the Nazis and alien laws. Above all, they pray for those in authority. He's talking about how he had to pray for his tormentors, for his captors, for that is our greatest service. But they are only passing through the country. 
At any moment, they may receive the signal to move on. Then they will strike tents, leaving behind them all their worldly friends and connections. He's talking about his arrest when he had to leave behind his possessions, his family, everything that he had in order to remain obedient to Jesus and following only the voice of their Lord who calls. He concludes with this. He says, they leave the land of their exile and start their homeward trek towards heaven. And he started his homeward trek towards heaven shortly after writing this. Dallas Willard, the Apostle Paul, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, they all agree. Why is there so much evil in the world? Why are there Nazis? Well, the answer is because there's something deeply wrong with the human heart. And yes, it would take millions of lives and and military power to overthrow the Nazis, but there's no way to stop something like that from ever happening again because there is something deeply sick and deeply wrong inside of every living human. And if we get put in the right circumstances, we'll start putting swastikas on altars. The question is, are we training ourselves for obedience? Are we training ourselves to create an inward willingness to do good, to love our enemies, to sacrifice of ourselves? The only way to do that is through the disciplines God has given us by trusting him. The reason we do disciplines is not to earn God's favor. Jesus has already won us God's favor on the cross. The reason we do the disciplines is precisely because God has given them to us to enjoy him, to walk with him, and to train in us a readiness to do good. What about you? Have you been training? Do you see that inward readiness to do good? I know for some of us, maybe we're feeling ashamed and embarrassed. Yes, I know I should be in prayer. Yes, I know I should be in the Bible. I am not trying to guilt trip you at all. I'm trying to invite you on an amazing journey of transformation that only Jesus can do. So if you've never done the disciplines before, great, I wanna invite you to start. We, we create these workbooks that go through books of the Bible, whatever we're preaching on. And this one going through Luke starts tomorrow. We don't do this because we think books are cool. We do this because we want to be a church that has been trained by God in godliness. And the only way to do that is reading his word and praying. If we wanna be the kind of church that loves our city, that gives to our city, that makes a difference in the world, we have to be a church where every individual is having their heart refurbished by Jesus through the disciplines. Maybe you used to train all the time, but you've fallen out of the habit. I wanna invite you, start. Hop back into God's word. Hop back into prayer. It's always hard at first. It's just like working out. But over time, your soul will be strengthened. If you're doing it every day, keep it up. Don't give up. It's not always a magical feeling to read the Bible or or pray, and that's okay. God is strengthening you too. One of the ways we strengthen our faith is through communion, by partaking in Christ's body and blood. On The night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples together in a room and he broke a loaf of bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in faith. His body broken for you. Grace is costly. Obedience is costly. But he broke his body for us and then he took a cup and wine and he poured the wine into the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many. Every time you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. So I want to invite you for this morning to take communion and be strengthened by Jesus, to start your training, to continue your training, but to allow him to train in you a inward desire to do good and to send out that 
inward desire to do evil. If you have put your faith in Jesus, I'll invite you to come forward. Um, We'll have a table, and the person serving communion will have wine in their hand. Uh, They'll have grape juice on the stool in front of them. You can just rip off a piece of bread and dip it into the wine or dip it into the grape juice and eat. If you're gluten-free, we also have gluten-free options on the table right in front of them. If you are here today and want to give to the needs of people in our community, I want to invite you to give. At the back, we have black offering towers marked with mercy. One of the ways we remember God's generosity to us is by giving generously to other people. So if those who are giving communion would come forward, I'll pray. Jesus, train us to do good. Train and discipline out of us the readiness to do evil. You, by your grace and mercy, have transformed our hearts. You have renewed and regenerated us. You've given us the gift of your righteousness. And now I pray we would receive that gift by walking in your disciplines. I pray we would receive that gift by laboring to know you more, to love you more, and to be changed. We thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of prayer, silence, solitude, fasting. I pray you would just help us to pick up one of those things this week and transform us from the inside out. It's that we pray. Amen. If you put your faith in Jesus, please come forward, take and eat.